This week's guest on The Road You Leave Behind is songwriter Luke Laird, one of the premier songwriters in all of Nashville. He's collaborated with some of the biggest stars in the country music format, everyone from Carrie Underwood to Casey Musgraves to Eric Church and beyond. He's also stepped outside of country music. He's worked with Neo and John Legend as well. To his credit, 24 number one singles and counting. He has a brilliant mind. He's been a friend of mine for more than a decade now, and I just love his spirit. I love being around him. I love hearing his philosophy and perspective on the world. It makes me better. He's a great man. Without further ado, here's Luke Laird on The Road You Leave Behind. Check. Yo, you there? Yo, I'm, I'm trying to get my... Uh... There it is. All right. Can, can you? Can, are you getting audio? I'm getting audio and video. You look handsome as hell. Hey, this you morning. know, I didn't get my makeup artist over here in time, but <laughs> it's all good. I like that swoosh. That's good. <laughs> uh, uh, morning. What's up, man? How we doing? Good, man. Thanks. Thanks for uh, being an early riser like myself. Oh, I've been up for. Three hours now. I got three kids, dude. You know the score. Oh, I hear you. You buddy. got them youngins running around like wild heathens. You better be up early. I hear you, man. Um. So it just I I've wanted to have this conversation with you for so long, and I thought we'd have it at a show sometime. But I'm thrilled that we actually get to do it on this platform. And I have so many questions for you that there's no way we're going to get through them all. Sure. But we're going to try. And I just want to start with, do you remember when we met? I, I remember meeting you, and I feel like we were in Vegas. Is that right? We were in Vegas. You have a very good memory. And, and it was with Eric Church, and I, I can't remember. Was... He was playing the Pearl with Miranda Lambert. Oh, that's right. And uh, we were up way too late. Yes. And you and your wife and Lainey and me <laughs> shared some random conversion van back to whatever hotel <laughs> casino we stayed in. It's funny. And I re <laughs> go ahead. No, I think it's funny because I must have really built it up in my mind because for some reason I thought we were in a limo. <laughs> we were not, not in a, a limo. <laughs> no, no, brother. This was no limo. This was like a Ford Econo line 350 conversion van yes. or something and uh and we went back but i remember asking you that night i remember asking you why aren't you an artist <laughs> if you have the ability to write these songs why not just be an artist and you had a very unique answer at that time but now you are an artist well well I don't know, man. I, I, I don't know what I said at the time, but I'm sure it was something to do with, um, you know, the, the artist touring schedule. Um, That's it. You, and here's, here's the reality too. I, you know, when I first came to Nashville, my, one of the first, um, we like to call guitar poles where my, the publisher publishing company that signed me, we got together with another publishing company, brought some new writers together and just, you just hang out, play some songs and I'll never forget, I'm sitting there playing my song. I, I think it's not, it's pretty good, you know, for 24 year old guy or whatever. There's a guy sitting right across from me. Who's my age. He strums a chord and starts singing. And I was like, man, I'm way out of my league. This dude, I'm like, if this is what <laughs> new songwriters are, and I'm going to tell you that song, that guy, he had glasses on, no facial hair, nothing like that. It was Chris Stapleton. And I, and I was like, no way. Yes. We were both brand new writers. And I was like, man, if all the writers are in Nashville are like this, I'm screwed. But I realized pretty, pretty quickly. He was, he was one of a kind. So, but man, it, it, it messed with me in, in a, in a great way too. I was like, this is, this is why I moved to Nashville, man. Cause the best, the best in the business are here. So yeah, for me being, okay. So the artist thing now it's, Look, I'm fully aware I'm never going to be Stapleton, Eric Church, anybody like that. I love where I'm at in life. I'm, I'm 42 years old. I'm married. I have two boys. I love being a dad. Love doing the family thing. But these songs were so personal. And it was actually my wife 
that encouraged me. She's like, why don't you just make an album? Like, we'll put it out. She's really smart on the business side of things. I'm just like, I need to be in here creating. And I was like, is that weird? Is that like a, is this like a midlife crisis or something like that? But she's like, no, I think these, I, I do think people will connect with these songs. And even if it's on a small scale, this is a great time to do it. You know, we were all locked down. So that's where that came from. And I really enjoyed the process of, you know, thinking I can do whatever I want with these songs. I don't have to worry about handing them off to a record label who, or, you know, after you write these songs, it's really in the artist hand and the record label. And <clears throat> that's kind of it. So this was kind of a full creative control. It's kind of fun. If you guys don't know, the, the, the album's called Music Row. And Luke sent it to me. And I loved that he sent it to me in cassette tape form. <laughs> like, y'all need to look at this bad boy. For those of you who are in your early 40s, look at that sweet, sweet son of a gun right there. Man. Uh, I love, when, when, when I got this, I was moved on a lot of levels. First of all, you wrote me the nicest note with it. And I was really grateful for the message. And, and Luke wrote me a really nice note that, there was a thank you letter for my appreciation for country music and my like visceral appreciation for everything that country music is. And that just meant the world to me, man. So thank you for that. Well, and, and I, and, and I really mean it. Cause you know, you, of course I got a lot of friends that love country music, but it's cool to see people in other businesses who actually know about country music and that passion. It gets me fired up again. Cause sometimes we can get, here on music row you're you're so it's so inside and and i'm sure same same deal in your business in other ways like i can no appreciate question. what you do from in a different perspective because i'm outside of it and so i just always you know i from that first time we met i knew that you were just like a huge fan and i love that because i am too uh it's it's just it, i've always said this about country music specifically but music in general when we we cannot speak it's our voice when we cannot walk it's our vehicle it's all of those things yeah. that play into those emotions if we're willing to be vulnerable enough to let and back to vulnerability mm -hmm. that's one thing about this this album that really struck me man you were a lot of things in writing this but vulnerable is the tip of the spear in sure. in terms of those attributes i mean you're talking about you're writing a very personal song about quitting drinking. You're writing a very personal song about losing loved ones with leaves on the ground. Mm -hmm. Why were those messages important for you to disseminate in this record? Man, I, I just feel, <clears throat> you know, uh, the, the songs came, those songs came before, uh, before I'm like, I'm going to make an album. So they came from a, a pure place of me sitting down by myself, thinking about back when I was a kid and before you're in the business of it and not thinking, oh, can this be a hit? Or who can I, can I send this to so-and-so? I'm sitting down writing these songs from a, um, just a very personal place of what I'm actually feeling right now. And, and that's, what, that's why I don't drink anymore was one of those that I wanted to write for a long time because, um, you know, being in country music, everything we do, you know, social, every social, you know, drinking in that. And I'm, by the way, I'm not an anti-drinking person at all. It was just for me. <laughs> I've written more drinking songs since I've been sober than when, <laughs> but the problem with me is it wasn't just a good night, good time on a, on a Friday night. It turned into a poor decisions on, on uh Saturday, Saturday morning, you know? And so, I played that song one night at the Bluebird Cafe here in Nashville, which, you know, for those of you that don't know, it's just like a world-renowned songwriter place. People come in, it's about 100 people can fit in there, and you just play your songs in an intimate setting. So I played that song one night. I was almost nervous to play because I'm like, do I play, like, should I play this? Like, you just, like you said, it felt very vulnerable. And when I wrote that song, I had that title for years. That's why I don't drink anymore. And I'm like, why don't I drink anymore? And one night I just sat down and I started thinking about my grandpa, started thinking about when I stopped drinking, what kind of man do I want to become? You know, I, I really feel like God didn't make me to turn into a drunk. <laughs> you know, 
I, in my fallen nature, I have that within me. And so that's, that's a bummer, but that's not who I'm meant to be. And so I just sat down one night and, and, and it just came out and it felt very personal, but going back to, I played it at the bluebird and a girl came up to me afterwards who was, um, a student at Belmont. She had tears in her eyes and, uh, you know, I played all these other hits and she wanted to talk to me about that song. Um, and she told me a story about that her dad was an alcoholic. He was trying to get sober, kind of going back and forth. And for whatever reason, just, I think just her seeing someone who, you know, is like her dad in a way, not, not didn't see me as a dad, but who struggled with the same things. She really found comfort in that. And so she said, is that, can I, download that anywhere or anything i was like no i just wrote you know just wrote it and but i went home that night made a little guitar vocal i got her email address because it meant a lot to me i'm like wow these songs really are connecting and, and so i just emailed it to her but then that triggered like maybe there's some more people that could want to hear something like this and, and so then that kind of directed like i want to make these songs personal but i know like me going through stuff isn't unique to all the emotions that we all feel. This is just my story of it. And hopefully people can connect with that in a way and put themselves in those stories. Well, it's fabulous. And, and you guys go, go to whatever streaming service you, you can find. I know it's on YouTube, go buy it. It's called music row. And, and I was really grateful that you sent it to me, Thanks. brother. You know, you said something there. You said something there that sticks in my crawl for my friends who are songwriters and artists. Mm -hmm. And I don't have to be beholden to whatever the politics are in this. Yep. How often does the specter of will radio play this hang over the creative energy in songwriting moments? Oh, man. I feel like half of my battle is getting artists and writers to not overthink that because, and believe me, it crosses my mind too. I mean, look, I'm, this is, this is a business. We, I want my songs to get heard. I want them to get played on the radio, but when, when that becomes the, the primary driving force of how you write a song, yeah, you may have some songs that fit the, the, the radio, but all of a sudden, and you'll hear it and I'm not calling out any specific songs, but the edges get carved off, everything gets smoothed over, it, it fits this mold. And yes, it might work. But those songs will never be in my book, the ones that you want to go back to, even two years from now, let alone, you know, 10, 15 years, I'm trying to write songs. Yes, when I, I, I do want to write hit songs, They're, I'm not going to write a, a 15 verse folk song, and try to expect the radio, <laughs> the radio, the radio is going to play it. But you're trying to, to find something that's going to cut through. And that and sometimes that's like in a line that can. It, it's always the lines that scare radio that then if they actually end up getting heard, being the ones that people are like, man, I want to hear that that song. And so it's that fine line in, in the writer room. You, you try to protect as much. Let's just write this thing, make it as good as we we possibly can. And then, hey, it, worst case, if we have to change something here or there, that's that's one, that's one thing. But but when you start editing before you even get the thing written, then it just gets turns into vanilla. And but I've been part of some of those songs, and it's just a, ugh, it's like as a creative person, you're like, oh no. Then I have to go. Then I do have to go write something just crazy, and I'm like, hey, nobody's gonna sing that. <laughs> Well, you've written a few crazy ones that people did cut, radio <laughs> did like, yeah. and the next thing you know, it's a forever song. Yeah. Uh, and we'll get into some of those in a minute. I, for, for those of you listening or watching who don't know, I think you're at 24, 25 number ones now. And I know that pays really well. In a lot of cases, uh, that's not what defines you. Sure. But, but, uh, I mean, some of the songs that that's Luke Luke has written, even with with my buddy Eric, uh, drinking my hand. Mm -hmm. uh, I listened to "Give Me Back My Hometown" for twenty miles of the two thousand fourteen Boston Marathon on a loop. <laughs> oh, that's awesome! Um, twenty miles. I listened to it till my phone died. But I, I want to break down those songs mm -hmm. after a while. First, let, let's just kind of 
let's get to blue collar America where you grew up. You grew up on the Ohio Pennsylvania border yep. out there near Lake Erie. I mean, you're talking near Youngstown, really yeah. blue collar kind of area. Yep. How did how did growing up in that environment kind of shape your worldview? Man, you know, um, I come from, yeah, it, you know, I grew up on Laird Road, which is my last name. And I've told people that like, oh, you must have really been, it's like, no, it, it was, it was called Laird Road because that's where like my great grandparents settled. It's not, <laughs> there's nothing great about it. Um, I, I grew up next, next door to my grandparents' farm. Um, my grandpa had a hundred acre farm. He gave my dad three acres to build a house on. He and my mom built a house. Um, and you know, small town, I, I just, I feel like I was around just hardworking people and not, you know, even moving to Nashville, it, it can have a small town feel as a city, but there, there's just, I'm trying to think of a way to say this. Um, let me put it this way. Like in my town, there was, you know, if you're, you knew that like the doctor had money, like a, a doctor has right. my, relative to, but it, there was no, I don't know. It just felt like we we're all in a way. And I know we weren't like on, on a level playing field. Um, people were, a lot of people were just getting by. A lot of people just getting by, but, but a lot of people were just hard working Monday to Friday, go to church on Sunday. And, and that was enough for them. And, and they really valued family. It's family values, you know, it's um, not perfect by any means, but just, I, I was talking to my dad the other day and we were just talking about some of the people from our hometown and just the characters um, I, 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 the humor, like you find in, I had an hour and a half bus ride to school and wow. <laughs> and so now I didn't live, I only lived like 10 miles from the school, but by the time you take all those stops and you're thinking it's rural America and it's, it's rural, like where you would see in North Carolina, West Virginia. And that's pretty much all I need to say. I got an education on the school bus. Um, the things I learned, it, <laughs> uh -huh. it was me too. It was not, not the way that an ideal way for, for a parent, for their kid to learn things, but, <laughs> and believe me, I, there's things that I'm hopefully my kids, it'll take a few extra years to learn some of these things. Cause man, I remember this. <laughs> I can tell, I could say it on here, I guess. Cause we, uh, this one kid, I thought, man, I was in third grade riding with seniors in high school, you know, I was like, man, those guys are super cool. And it was the guys with the mullets. This is like 80, yeah, man. the mullets, Motley Crue t-shirt, flannel yeah, shirt, I had a pack of Marlboro Reds in the pocket. And I remember I'd see them come on, try to try to be cool. I take my boom box on there that I got for my birthday from my aunt when I was in kindergarten, I'd crank that guns and roses up. I'd be like, these guys are going to think, man, he's used to, and I, they just be back there. Just like, just, I mean, going crazy. The bus driver would have to pull the bus over and he's cussing at him and everything. But I remember this one kid, he would get off the bus every day. And I was like, looking up to this guy, I'm like, he's cool. He'd step off that school bus, make out with his girlfriend, light up a cigarette, light up a cigarette. <laughs> flip off the whole bus and, and then moon all of us. And I was like, man, that's awesome. <laughs> and, these, I, and I know I've kind of gotten off track with the questions, but and I guess that can happen anywhere, but just growing up in rural America, just the people and, you know, had fun playing little league and it was just kind of a, a lot of it was just kind of a rough crowd. I don't know how else to put it, but but still well-meaning people. And I love going home. I, I still have so much family up there. I, I miss, um, I do miss the small town, the, you know, for, and, and it, it's easy to romanticize when you're away from it because there's a lot of heartbreak as well. But I, I do miss that going into the grocery store 
going into the the one restaurant where everybody kind of hangs out and just even if you're not super tight everybody kind of knows everybody and there's people look out for each other i loved growing up there i really did um it's you know it can it can be kind of sad when i go home now too because as you know in that area of the country too just so many of the jobs are gone um yep the way you know the way it used to be is different people have had to move out and where i went to high school it's now other schools so it's it's not growing you know and and we can get we can take for granted when you live in areas where it just feels like everything's happening and moving on i can completely relate um i grew up in appalachia it's a i'm the same way i'm so proud of where i grew up i'm proud of what that environment made me Mm -hmm. I'm so grateful for the parents that I had who taught me the lessons that I learned and I carry that with me every day, but I was always somebody who, despite the fact, hold on, I got a call coming in. It's probably some robo call. Get out of here. (laughs) Um, Despite the fact that I was proud of that, I always had these fantastic dreams that those, that those borders would not hold me. Yeah. I knew that I like, I just knew in my heart, whether that was wanderlust, whatever that was, I was going to go be something, man. Mm -hmm. I was going to take that with me. I was never going to forget that. I will always be rooted in that, but I'm going to fly, man. And, and I'm, I feel so grateful that I've been blessed to be able to do that. And that all of those guys that I grew up with who are still there as happy as they can be, to be there are actually proud of me that I did that, that I took that approach. And that just, that means more to me than I could ever articulate. Oh yeah. Um, when did music enter your sphere? Man, music entered my sphere early on. I, um, when I was now, now my parents, neither of my parents are musical. Um, but I, I started taking, got some piano lessons right, right when I was about kindergarten age. And I, one day a few years ago I asked my mom I go why did you get me piano lessons like you know again little what made them think oh he wants to play piano um and she said you know every Sunday after church you'd go up to the front and start banging on the piano and she looked at my dad (laughs) like maybe we should try to get him piano lessons I went through like six piano teachers because (laughs) because my problem was it was so hard they're trying to teach me which nothing against them, probably the proper way to learn with reading music and everything. And I, it was just, I couldn't get it. And I wasn't, I didn't enjoy it at all. They finally found a guy who went to the local high school, super talented. His name was Dennis C. I'll be forever grateful to this guy. And he was played by ear really good. And he would come over to the house and he's like, Oh, Luke plays by ear. And he'd show me chords. Well, so we, I never, that was the end of me trying to read music, but he would wow. me chords yeah. and he actually wrote some songs and I would learn like his songs. And from that moment on, I was kind of making stuff up, like not thinking, oh, I'm a songwriter. It's just like, I'd sit down at the piano, write something. And then first grade, I was like, I want to play guitar. My dad, or they were thinking, okay, who do we know that plays guitar? <laughs> Again, not a, mu- Northwestern Pennsylvania, not a musical hotbed. <laughs> not a big music scene. so um he he found this woman who was a secretary at one of the churches in our town and she was kind of like this old hippie had hair down to down to her knees they dropped me off there she lived by herself and i remember man it kind of smells weird in here I, years later i realized oh that smelled like weed in that house i thought the way cat, <laughs> i thought it was like the way cats smelled or something but they dropped me off there. They dropped me off there half hour a week and she'd teach me some chords and uh, it just opened my world up. And I would just, just love music. Um, once I got to high school, I never was involved like with music through the school or anything. Um, Cause I was so like, I love basketball so much. So I spent high school, you know, playing basketball, summer camps, all that stuff, but I always loved kind of, that's when I really got into country music because it was the nineties and I just learned all those songs. I'd sit up at, sit up at night with my boombox. If I wanted to learn a new George Strait song, it'd come out 
I'd, I'd hit play two lines at a time, hit pause, write down those lines. And, and at that point I was kind of learning song form. You know, I, I wasn't doing that to learn that, but I realized that's what was happening. I'd learn it. Then I'd write the chords down. I'd figure the chords out. And I'd had a notebook of all these, not songs I'd written, but country songs that I just wanted to learn how to play. And then in another notebook was songs I was writing. And so, um, they weren't that good, but I was putting, putting them together. So, <laughs> you know, that you, you're that era to me, it's the greatest era of country music. The nineties to me is the sweetest spot. And granted, those were my formative years. Sure. Those were the years where I was trying to figure out who I was, what I wanted to be, where I was going, but everything they were saying was my town. Yeah. All of it. Every bit of it was my town. And so it was so relatable. So true. Uh, Man, I, you know, I, same deal for me. And for, so for me that being in Nashville now, you, you know, starting as a fan and I'm still a fan, I got to pinch myself every day. Cause I'm like, shoot, man, I got David Lee Murphy in my phone. I got, you know, and, and I feel the same way, man. And, Trust me. And, and, and there's young artists, you know, that come in that don't know, they don't know that stuff. And, and, nothing against them because they didn't grow up through that time but i also love i love being able to sit in a room and i'm writing with john party and i'm like dude you need to i know you know thinking problem by david ball go check out honky tonk healing on that same album that feel and so it's like, oh this is awesome i love i love getting to do that with new writers or artists or, or stuff like that because i know that music because that's what i grew up on and so i'm like holy crap like one night i remember meeting dina carter you know she had song of the year when i was a senior in high school strawberry wine and somebody she like, was also the hottest thing <laughs> on the planet well yeah and and i was like man i can't believe i'm talking to dina carter i i, I think i actually even said it to her because i don't at this point i don't care i'm like i'm just gonna tell you like this is this is kind of surreal for me and it's it's so much fun man i i am still a fan I'm a fan of new artists. There's still so many great, you know, Morgan Wall. There's so many great new artists coming to town every day. I'm the same way when I get to, like, it blows my mind that I have some of those folks number two. And when I get the opportunity to spend any time with them, I just spent a lot of time with Travis Tripp down on his ranch oh, in wow. Georgia. And I, I mean, I was unabashed. Like I just told him, <laughs> dude, I'm, I'm a fanboy. You're just going to have to deal with yeah. that. And and it's so cool to me when, when someone accepts that appreciation genuinely mm -hmm. and doesn't try to be like, oh, no, yeah. you know, like, I appreciate that. I do, too. Uh, you were talking about being a hoop head, man, and loving <laughs> basketball and playing basketball. Let's jump into that. What impact does sports have on your, on your growth as a person? Oh, man, such a huge impact. Uh, I think – I think sports are, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful that I, that I, that my parents got, you know, early on as a kid, you know, uh, Pennsylvania is a big wrestling state. I did wrestling for a little bit as a little kid. And I realized they say after my, my, my first <laughs> tournament, I got my butt kicked about, I, I won. I think I won one match and just got hammered two other ones. Okay. That's not my sport. That's what my dad did growing up. Um, and again, I'm, I'm grateful. He didn't push me to that. He's like, Oh, he likes basketball. He didn't know anything about basketball, but they, they tried to get me in the camps and just were always so supportive coming to the games. But, but yeah, I think it's, it's that working with different personalities, you know, in a team sports, especially basketball, you know, and, going through something together with 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 some other people um those hard practices one of the worst feelings was that's why i can relate when i watch like a team like lose a state championship i never got to a state champion but just a big you've worked so hard and you lose and and i know like these kids might not know it now but man this is so good they're they're gonna yeah, you know, and, and the, the winning stuff and how to, to deal with that. But I remember, um, man, like you'd go to a big rival game, a, a away game. So you ride the bus and everybody's focused. And then 
if you win that game, man, that's it's a big party. Everybody's in a good mood, riding home on the bus. The coach, you like want to hang out with the coach. If you lost that game, that bus ride better be dead silent. And I'm yep. like, if it was a Tuesday game, like, man, I do not want to go to school tomorrow. Like just that feeling of, but you get up and you do it and then you get through it. And, and it's such a good, uh, just like metaphor for life. You know, you're going to have, there can be some big wins, but there's going to be some hard losses and things way heavier than losing a basketball game, but it kind of prepares you through, you, you got to have some disappointments. I, I don't know anybody going through life. Who's just, we're all going to have disappointments and we're going to have really hard things. Um, and sports, I just think it's sometimes on a smaller scale, at least where I, where I was playing, I wasn't a, a pro or even college or anything like that, but it just taught me a lot about, you know, taking some losses and getting back up. Um, but I love basketball, man. When I, when I was in high school, we had some decent teams. Like I, I still, that's the other thing. I still talk to my coach. Um, we'll still catch up and I, and I love it. Um, but man, we get to those state playoffs and every time get pounded by this team, it was called Blackhawk who would always go on to, we, we, I, I'd, I'd look at them and I'm like, okay, they, they weren't one of those teams that you were, you'd look at come out on the court and like, Oh, they're gonna smash us like like some all star, but man, those kids were so well coached and they were so good. And I played. It was Archie Miller, who oh he was the point guard. His dad was the coach, and they would just annihilate teams. And Archie, you know, was about this big. You know, he was always underestimated, and he would just murder people. <laughs> he could go, man. He's a Archie point could guard go man. now. You know, it's interesting what you're talking about. I say to my kids all the time, you're going to lose a lot more in life than you win. And so you have to learn to use that loss not only as a lesson of how to win next time, but as fuel yeah. to win next time. And you have to learn to lose with grace. That doesn't mean you like it. No. But you have to learn to repurpose it. And I say it all the time. And I also wear them out. Like I'm on, I say, I'm Uncle Rico, dude. Like I'm Buddy Garrity from Friday Night Lights about my high school athletic experience too. There's such beauty in shared sacrifice. Yeah. And there's such beauty in the fact that whether it's hoops and certainly in football, I always use football, but yes. when you step between the lines of a football field, all those socio-political lines that divide us in out, out there, yep. they're gone. Yeah. They don't exist anymore. You have to lean on your brother, and he has to be self-disciplined enough to be the best version of him so you can be the best version of you, or you ain't winning. Yeah, so true. Man, I that that is so true. I bet you have so much insight, especially with the people that you get to talk to at the highest no question. highest level. I'm, I'm fascinated with the Nick Sabans and the people who just deliver and, and, and somehow they're able to get that many people on the same page and buying into this culture. Um, it's fascinating to me. We'll have that conversation sometime at a show. Yeah. For uh, sure. All right. I want to talk while we're on hoops. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about this. We're going to go back to like our youth <laughs> and we're going to discuss hoops real quick. All right. Okay. So who's the goat? Michael Jordan. Thank you. I, you. You heard it from Luke Laird, America. Because everybody this is wants not even to know. A debate. It's not even a debate, bro. <laughs> like, I don't understand how we even get to, like, LeBron, generational star. Best player of his era. Oh. Um, Kobe Bryant, assassin. Just utter assassin. Yes. But MJ's the GOAT. I mean, when you see the um... – and look, I guess all great players have this to an extent, but the way – I don't know. I just never saw any, any anybody just – that the want and this, like, I don't – I do not care. I am winning. And, and, he, and they all knew it when he got on the court. And look, 
that dude was you know i i know we all watched the big documentary i think some of that would be tough in a in a personal life but if you if you're like i'm gonna you get to pick pick your people to be leading your team in on, on the basketball court hands down i'm going michael jordan because the way that he's pushes everyone around him let alone his ability but it's just like you're just like i will follow you <laughs> that dude is right no question and and i you know I, I feel like too what doesn't get enough respect is every time michael jordan went to the went to the rack he got assaulted every oh. time every single time in today's game he would score 75 a night oh yeah you can't hand check anymore. No. Turn the lights out, Sally. It's over. I mean, him having to play the Pistons. I mean, those guys yeah. were brutal. Just, just brutal. Uh, you're down one. This may be the same answer. Down one, five seconds to go all time. Who gets the ball? I'm giving it to Michael Jordan, man. Michael. I, all right. I, I just, I, for whatever, look. Steph Curry's a better shooter than Michael Jordan. I mean, LeBron James physically stronger, but there's something I don't know. And maybe I'm crazy, but I'm like, I trust this guy's going to make something happen. You're not crazy. Better handle AI or Kyrie. Hmm. I got to go. Um, I think Kyrie's got better handle. You got a nasty handle, man, but AI was a oh, he dude. Was, yeah, I need to go back and watch some of those games. He he pound for oh pound for pound, and he would dunk on people like like on people at six foot or six one or whatever he was. Is there any team ever from nineteen ninety three forward? You pick your twelve players from ninety three forward who could play with the dream team. Oh, who could play with the, the original dream team? Are you saying like be on the team or play against? No, I'm like saying challenge them. them. The dream team is it's is the dream team. But I mean, you know, LeBron, uh, Kobe, uh, Steph, uh, you know, all the all the all the guys from that time forward. Yeah. You know, I, I for sure think the athletic ability, they with the athletic ability they could, I just don't know if all those guys could buy into the to the system of just the, the cutthroat. Like, uh, mm-hmm. man, I one thing, and look, I'm no expert on sports, and I don't, when did it become like, if you sign a contract and you're just like, screw it, I don't, feel like it then all of a sudden you can just go to a different team again i don't understand it and i I know there's a lot of i'm not in those situations either but back in the day it just felt like if you signed you just know somebody okay they gotta they gotta play this out and then they can go on to their next thing now it's like i get in there for two weeks i don't like this and literally i'm not that's that's one of the biggest differences between the era you and i grew up in and now is you knew that Michael was eventually going to have to get by the Pistons. You knew that Larry and Magic were going to have absolute battles. Yes. I mean, for the supremacy of the league. And because of that, there was that continuity that we fell in love with. I knew every player, every stat, every hometown, every college. Like, I knew Robert Parrish went to Canisius. Who knows that? So, like, but you know, Scotty Pippen went things. to Central Arkansas, right? Like, right. Pips in town. You you should probably see Scotty at the hop in all the time with Scotty Junior, who, by the way, is a ball. Yeah, player. he is. I haven't run into him in Nashville yet, but I know a lot of people is like, man, I ran into Scotty Pippen. That's um, true, man. So I'm fascinated by uh, several other parts of your career, but one of which is. The fact that you graduate from Middle Tennessee State mm-hmm. and you are all of a sudden this tour management person <laughs> for Brooks and Dunn. Yes. What, what did you learn by osmosis 
during that period of your career? What was that like? I'll tell you, um, first of all, those guys were awesome to work for. And it was a great, I'm just going to be honest, the way that all happened. So when I was in college, I dated Ronnie Dunn's daughter. Um, oh, yeah. And, uh, and by the way, we still get along. I, she, she lives here in Nashville and everything, but Ronnie, we always kind of got along and I get out of school or no, it's the summer before I took me four and a half years. I'm surprised I made it out in in that time, but (laughs) the summer before, um, so in the summer, the real world started in the summer. Yeah, exactly. In summer, summertime here in Nashville, I was parking cars at Opryland Hotel. I was valeting. So then, the next summer comes around, and Ronnie's like, "Hey, man, are you got a job for the summer?" I said, "Well, I'm just gonna be parking cars at the, you know, it's decent. I get cash. The only problem was you'd get that cash, and then I'd put it in my S10 and straight drive straight to Tower Records, and it was gone." <laughs> Before I was like, "Dadgum, I need to pick up some more hours." <laughs> so, but Ronnie's like, "Why don't you ever? You want to? Why don't we? Why don't you come out on the road with us?" I was like, "Okay, awesome!" Like doing what? He goes, "I, I don't know. I mean, I'll talk to Scotty, who was his tour manager." And I was like, "Man, thank you! Like this, this what a great!" I'm like, huge country music fan. I'm gonna get to go on the road. I've never been on a tour bus. First day, he said he told me where to meet the crew bus. I get on, I get my own bunk and everything. I'm like, man, I'm living the dream. And I, I get off that bus 7 a.m. the next morning. And I don't even remember where that first show was. It may have been in North Carolina somewhere. And I didn't know anything about what's going on backstage. I just knew find Scott, Scott Edwards. And so I talked to Scott and he was super cool. He's standing out there smoking a cigarette. He goes, yeah, man, just go in there in a production office. And I was like, what's a production office? I literally didn't know yep. anything. So... From that point on, I kind of was like Scotty's right hand man, and I would do anything. And so there were some shows, like if our the merch guy was out, I would go sell T-shirts. I learned how to count out T-shirts, collect the cash. This is you know before everybody could pay with the card and all that. Um, the guitar tech, his grandmother died one weekend, and Ronnie was like, "Well, I mean, we could fly somebody in, but nobody knows the show." They're like, "Luke, you pretty much know the show," and I was like, "I mean, I guess so." So I was a guitar tech for a weekend and I literally had to in between the songs know which guitar to take out the kicks uh, as well as their all their guitar players. And one of the funniest things about that, and I was nervous, I'm like, okay, I have the set list and I'm going through stuff. And uh I remember the the lights go down, Brooks, they they finished some some big uh some I don't know, big honk, honky tonk truth or something like that. The lights would go down and I'm supposed to go out, give kicks his mandolin, trade for the electric. And I'm trying to kind of get a jump start on it. And so right as those lights go down, I'm running out there and kicks does one of his big swings and hit me square in the head. And I, I'm bleeding. I'm, I'm stumbling. <laughs> I'm stumbling. <laughs> oh, like no. trying not to pass out on stage before the lights come back. And, and so I give him that. <laughs> And I walked in and all the crew guys in the back are dying laughing. I'm wiping blood off my, luckily I didn't go unconscious, but I was like, man, it was so that, that, that gig was so fun, man. That the first tour I did with them was four acts. The, the, op, the opener opener was Keith Urban. Then it was Montgomery Gentry, which I love those guys. They were always so good. Me too. Toby Keith, who was great to me. We play basketball every day. Um, and then Brooks and Dunn was the headliner. And so I'm, I was in heaven, man. And I was exhausted too. Cause I mean, I was first one up last one to sleep at night. And I was just like, Oh my gosh. And it really made me come to a great appreciation for again, back to the blue collar, the crew guys, those guys, man, that is, they sacrifice a lot. They're, they're away from their families and stuff too, but they ain't getting all the glory on the stage. And, um, and, and, and it was just such a great experience. I learned so much, um, had so much fun, got to go out. It's like, I'm getting to see free concerts every night. And man, I just, I, I'll, I'll always cherish those memories. And, and I, one thing I did tell Kicks and Ronnie, I said, I'm so grateful for this job. I did move to Nashville to be a songwriter. I'm not going to try to play you my songs or anything, but if I get a publishing deal, I'm quitting this job. 
<laughs> and they were like, man, we totally get it. And they can relate because those guys moved to chase their yep. dreams too. And so when we'd be off the road, I'd be on Music Row and playing open mic nights and all that stuff until I could get something going. I want to talk about how the publishing deal came to be in a second, but first you've intrigued me. What kind of, what kind of game does Toby Keith have? Man. Uh, I imagine with that body, he's probably got a nasty post game. I'll tell you, he's, he does. He's got a pretty soft touch, pretty good game. I'll tell you. <laughs> he must talk all that trash too. No, knowing Toby, I bet he talks all. Oh that yeah. Stuff. He's, he's talking trash. I'll tell you who hacks more than anyone is kicks Brooks, man. He's freaking he's hack hack machine you know he's a headliner so what are you gonna do you're like oh okay you don't really want to call it even though you're like laying on the ground um the, the, I, let me tell you i have to tell you so while we're talking about basketball and country music you'll appreciate this i went out on the road one year a few years ago with thomas rett justin moore was on the show i can't even remember what tour it was if it was al dean or something and justin comes up on the bus and he's like, man, y'all want to run one? And, <laughs> and I was like, and he was talking, you know, there's a basketball hoop out there. And Justin, you know, such a nice guy. But to, let's be honest, I, inside I was like, I mean, he's so short. Like, I'm just thinking these things. I would never say, but I was like, okay. So me and TR, we go out, we're playing Justin Moore is a freaking baller and he started doing that behind the back and through the thing and like fading away i was just like i i loved it so much because i i so underestimated him i know he gets underestimated all the time and i was like justin i was like did you like play ball in high school yeah man i played i said were you good he's like i mean i'll start in point guard i was like oh that's all i go was your team good he goes I mean, we won state championship. I was like, <laughs> and I just, I just love that because I just wouldn't have expect. And I love it, man. One of the all-time great, genuinely kind human beings mm. that the good Lord ever created Absolutely. is that man, right there. I knew that dude when he before he had a record deal, and he has not changed one bit. Um, and I could say that about a lot of country artists I know. So how'd the publishing deal come to be? How, how do you become a professional songwriter? Man, you don't need a college degree for it. I'll tell you that. That's what, that's one thing. When I, <laughs> when I graduated, a writer said, why'd you go to college? You don't need a degree to write songs. I'm like, true. However, how did I know that this was going to happen? I, I couldn't have guaranteed this. And my parents would have like been really, really concerned They're They were fortunately supportive, but I'm sure they're like, oh, he's going to be a songwriter. Okay. Um, man, it's, there's no one way to do it. I will say if you're serious about writing songs, you got to come to Nashville. It, it's just so hard. I know a few writers, um, Lori McKenna, uh, I, I really can't think of anyone off the top of my head because it's, it's like, um, like with sports, you know, if you want to be the best, you got to go where the best are. You could stay in your little town and just have fun writing songs and think I'm awesome. And yeah, because you're the only one there that writes and your aunt and your grandma say, you're so good. But until you come to where the best are, you have no idea what, it's not just what you're, what you're up against, but just the level of the create. I know guys who, right now don't don't have publishing deals that are unbelievable so um for me i came to that i knew i needed to come to nashville um i visited mtsu it's the only school i applied to because they have a music business program and i'm super grateful mm -hmm. for that school i learned a lot about just contracts business side of things but also got access to nashville i got to volunteer at the cma awards uh country radio seminar real quick cma awards first year uh 1997 i'm volunteering backstage i've never been around a country star like in person i've seen them from a distance at a the, the travis tritt 10 feet tall tour 94 
<laughs> but I've never been, and I'll never forget the CMA Awards 1997. I'm standing there backstage and we got the big talk, you know, like you don't approach these artists and start talking to it, which I wouldn't have done that anyways, but you just have to kind of wear all black, be a fly on the wall. I was like, this is unbelievable. I'm sitting there. I remember they had a payphone back there. I called my dad and I was like, dad, you're never going to believe who's like 10 feet from me. He's like, who I go, Tracy Lawrence. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> and it's and it's funny that that I, re, I vividly remember that. And uh, anyway, I know I'm all over the place. But yeah, I get a pu so publishing deal. I came here. I start doing open mic nights. I finally was able to get a car my junior year of college i didn't have a <laughs> was riding around a bmx bike you got to get creative on dates i'll just meet you over there um <laughs> i got that 1989 chevy celebrity and buddy i was freaking i had a i have a friend who said oh chevy celebrity the only people who don't drive one um <laughs> was, was, so i would drive from murfreesboro which is about 30 minutes up here to nashville there was open mic nights at a place called the broken spoke there was one in the bottom of the a best western called uh called the hall of fame lounge it was next to the old country music hall of fame um and you just go in sign up and there's you know nashville's filled with songwriters you start meeting some people i always tell people if you got the goods in nashville you will get found out it's not like you go out and play some people the word of mouth around here travels so fast and um there was one writer i knew who was uh actually from my hometown which is crazy but he's older than me so i didn't know him that well and i didn't want to bother him a guy named bill luther wrote what i need to do for kenny chesney wrote my best friend for tim mm -hmm. mcgraw but he heard me play once and he said man and i really and i'll never forget this and i appreciate it. he goes i think you're good enough to to get a publishing deal and when you have somebody who's in the business that you want to do give you that confidence um that affirmation i was on cloud nine i went home i mean when he said it i was like oh cool you know i went home then like i'm like oh my gosh like this could actually happen i might get to write songs for a living just somebody who was somebody said i think you got what it takes um and man, he introduced me to the, to who eventually would sign me to my first publishing deal, but it opened the door to get in, to walk into a publishing company, sit down and play songs for people. Now it took like two years of me playing for eight, nine, 10 different publishers, nobody offering me a deal, but there was, it could be a little frustrating, but there was enough, they would left the door open for me to come back. So I was just like, I'm every night I'm writing songs. When I was out on the road with Brooks and Dunn, as early as I had to get up, I would still find little pockets of time, try to work on a little verse, get home. And I was just so hungry. Um, and man, it, I, I still can't believe I get to make a, be creative for a living. It's such a gift. Um, and to work with all these talents. Sure is. You know. So, so that's one thing that, that I'm, I can't imagine what the emotion is when, something that came out of your mind and out of your soul ultimately winds up being created. And then not only is it created, someone who has the voice to disseminate it chooses to cut it mm -hmm. and disseminate it. And then you're standing in an arena show with an artist who is singing something that came out of your mind and soul and 20,000 people are singing it back to them. And it's your words. It's what is that emotion? I can't fathom what that must it, be. It's, it's almost overwhelming. Um, it just makes you feel, I'm just like, God, thank you. You know, th thank you that, um, that I get to do this. It's so cool. Um, yeah, it's hard to explain that feeling of walking the, amongst people they're singing this song they have no idea that i had anything to do with it i, I love that i i um and i know you probably want to talk about eric but i'll tell you the the, the eric song so when we wrote drinking my you know i i have a feeling after we'd have to look at the date when you and i first met i think i might have 
I think we may have written drinking my hand on that tour run. I could be wrong. Or was he playing it at the show yet? That would make sense time-wise because I think that show was 2010 and Chief came out in 11. Yeah, so it wasn't it makes sense. And it was it, it was on and it was on the Miranda tour. We also wrote Don't Blame It on Whiskey on that run, which John Party ended up put just putting on this record. Yep. But anyways, here's here's just a maybe a, a little visual for the listeners. So on that tour run where I met you, Marty, was um at one of the shows, I think we were in South Dakota or something like that. I can't even remember. I know it's freezing cold. I go out and you know this Eric obviously had a lot of fans before he super up, but we're playing. I say we, I wasn't playing anything. Um, I was drinking coffee on the bus, but we, we, uh, we go into, I'm like, I'm going to go watch the whole show tonight. I walk in. It kind of looks like an armory of some sorts. It's kind of like a building that feels like everybody's kind of on one level. There's maybe a few bleachers on the side. So I go out to the front of the house to watch this show. And I, I don't know what the bar setup was at that place, but it looked like, I don't know if they just had kegs or something. Cause I, there was <laughs> felt like a thousands of people carrying red solo cups <laughs> at a concert. So, but I was looking at that and people, you know, Eric has the passionate fans and they're watching him. And as I'm watching just these, the people that I'm around and kind of observing everything and thinking about Eric and his fans, this little just line, one line and one melody comes to me. And I was like, I mean, it's a miracle. I didn't say, yeah, whatever, and just not think about it. But it was, I hear it over the music in my ear, like, all I want to do is put a drink in my hand. And I'm like, maybe that's a line for a song or something. So I go back to the bus. Eric comes off stage. It's me, Eric, another songwriter, Michael Heaney are sitting there God bless him. oh oh Heena, yeah <laughs> that's a character now oh buddy speaking of characters yeah <laughs> but eric has his in-ear monitors in he takes it off and i'm kind of sitting up in the front lounge with my guitar and he's like what are you what are you working on and i was like god i mean i go honestly i don't know if this is good enough for a whole song if it's just a line in the song and i just played the the three chords and it was like I, I kind of told him like the groove. I was like, all I want to do is put a drink in my hand. And he was like, I love it. Let's write it. He didn't even get the, he barely got the in-ears off. So he sits down and I just got to tell, I mean, you know, Eric is literally one of the best songwriters in the world. I've sat in a room with so many great writers. We all know he's a great artist. The, the writing that this guy does is unbelievable. He blows me away. And honestly, that may be, if not the only song, one of the only songs where I actually has said the title. Usually Eric has the idea. So we sit down, me and him and Heaney, and start cranking these verses out. We had about, I swear, like 20 verses, but it was so much fun. Eric's wife, Catherine, is sitting over there realizing Oh, you guys are writing a song, but literally nobody's writing anything down. I better keep up with this. She's she's typing everything we're saying. She should probably get co-writer credit for it. But <laughs> she's typing everything we're saying because we're just like writing, recording. And we had that song done in like an hour, probably. He's still sweating from the show. He hadn't even got like his shower or anything like that. And I remember we finished that and I was like, man, this this song feels pretty good. And the work tape we did on it, um, like the next day, Miranda Lambert um, had come up to the bus and we're like, check this thing out we wrote. And we play it and you can hear her at the end of the work tape go, holy shit. <laughs> it was one of, and so and people ask me, do you know when you've written a hit and all that? I don't know. I mean, I, you write so many songs a lot of times depending on who records it it could be a hit or not we wrote that and i was like man if eric record i feel pretty good about this i don't know if it'll be a big hit but i was so when he when he cut it man i was like dude they and they just took it to him and jay joyce just took it to another level in the studio and just freaking knocked it out of the park 
So there are a couple more I want to dive into that you wrote with him. I mentioned Give Me Back My Hometown earlier. How did that one happen? Put me in the room for that. Yeah, man. Um, so I get out to Eric. Well, r- real quick, on the way, Eric calls me up um, like he does with a lot of writers and like I'm going to be in a cabin in North Carolina for a month. Um, have a few different writers come out at different times. So on this particular day, first of all, I had my Nissan Frontier that I'd had for coming up on 10, 10 years. And I always wanted a black Ford F-150. Now, I didn't have to be fancy, but that's just kind of my dream truck. And I, you know, I'm not even a big car guy. Like, I don't know Jack about cars and trucks and all that, but like, I've always wanted F-150. It just feels pretty solid <laughs> and uh I was, I was telling my, my wife and i were having that conversation and at this point i could afford one but i'm also want to be smart and all that stuff well, i'm driving out i-40 to go to uh north carolina and i start having transmission issues with my frontier and i'm like i'm not even the freaking crossville tennessee and this thing is it's not going to make it and i'm like i got to get out there because i'm writing with eric church so I call my wife. I was like, hey, you know, we've been talking about getting a truck, F-150. And she's like, I, yeah. I said, I'm, I really want to, really do want to get She goes, well, I think once you get back, let's just go look. I think it's fine. Like your truck's almost 10 years old. You can afford to buy a truck, you know? Um, and I go, well, no, I would, I want to get one today. <laughs> <laughs> I said, no, I'm serious. I got, I'm having really bad transmission. I can't even go like over 50. It's like, I'm like, she goes, are you serious? I'm like, I swear, Beth, I'm not making this up. And you know, I have to get to North Carolina to write with Eric. She's like, oh my gosh. And this is so me and my wife. Cause she's so like the business one and researches stuff. She's like, all right, I'm going to call you back. Same. She's like, I'm going to call you back in like 10 minutes. So I'm just kind of coasting along there. She goes, okay, there's two dealerships in Knoxville. At this one, they have this, this, and this. At this one, they have that. I think you want to go to this particular dealership. And I think they have a, a couple black F-150s. I was like, awesome. She goes, I just emailed you the Edmonds report. Do not pay more than what I just sent to you. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> so I pull in. It's a Monday morning, pouring rain. Probably not a lot of cars being sold. This dude's standing, standing there like uh, kind of with the, in the overhang and has his hood up and he's smoking a cigarette. And I, I pull up and he's like, I go, yeah, man, I think my wife called. He goes, yeah, 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 yeah. He goes, man, I think we kind of have over, over here what you're looking for. And I see this one black F-150 and it was like the, the light from heaven shined down. Oh. I, yeah, yeah, totally. I said, man, yeah, I go, I want to buy that truck. And he goes, oh, okay, okay. He, and I said, he goes, well, do you want to test drive it? I was like, no, I don't have time to test drive it. And then I started thinking in my head, oh my gosh, if I don't even test drive this thing, I'm just trying to think how fast can I buy this truck? Um, so I said, okay, I better take it around the block. So I drove it and I'm like, however, the fastest way we can get this done. Cause I got to go to North Carolina. <laughs> I didn't say I'm going to write with Eric church or anything like that. It's like, okay. And so I bought that. I mean, it still took a while, but I bought that thing as fast as I could. I don't have the cleanest truck at the time. I still had a ton of CDs laying on the floor and all that. So they give me a few little like moving boxes from the dealership and I'm taking stuff out of my frontier, putting it in the F-150. So I pull up to the cabin at Eric's. Finally, I get there. He goes, man, nice truck. He's, he's like, that looks new. When'd you get it? I go, I just, yeah, I bought it on the way out here. He's like, what? I said, yeah. <laughs> he's like, okay. So the next morning we wake up. He's like, man, I got an idea. He goes, it's about a civil war soldier who like died, but like comes back from the dead. And I thought, I kind of thought he's joking, but I was like, Eric's a deep thinker comes back from the dead, visits his wife. And I was like, waiting for him to say, I'm just kidding. He never said, I'm just kidding. I was like, okay, that's what we're writing today. I'm like, I'm thinking inside, we ain't writing a hit today, but you know what? He's the artist and I'm here to serve the artist. So we write this song, and of course, since Eric's on it, sorry about that, it ends up being super cool, something that never, nothing ever happens with it. The next day, he goes, man, I want to write a song that has 
like one line in it in the course and i'm sitting there thinking i'm i'm like okay i'm trying to think how to do that um and he said it's called give me back my hometown i was like okay and then we start talking about how we grew up and man we're on the same page you know we're the same age um and it just and it just came in in that and I loved the simplicity. He, he had the vision to see, just say that one thing, give me back my hometown. This is my hometown. I was like, dad gum. We, we, we finished it. And I was like, this is, it gave me chills. And again, I didn't know if he's going to record it or whatever. And then when I heard what they did with it in the studio, I was like, I'm so grateful to be a part of this song. And that, that song still is like, as a songwriter, like one of my favorite when I'm playing at the Bluebird or something, it just goes over really well. And um, I really feel it every time I play it. It still gives me chills. And like I say, I mean, it. when I ran the Boston Marathon that year in 2014, it was the year after the bombing. Yes. So it was this, it was so emblematic of ripping our town back from the clutches of cowardice. Yes. And I don't know why. But I just kept listening and kept listening, ran to the cadence of it. And it was just really spiritual time for me. And I've told Eric that before, and I know it matters to him. Like, I know he loves that. I know that it, he feels oh, yeah. that. But, you know, he's like, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Eric. There is so much more that I want to talk about about i'll listen for those of you guys listening this dude has grammys on his shelf he's written and and worked with casey musgraves and half of carrie underwood's catalog and and he wrote talladega with eric and on and on and on but i've already kept you for an entire hour <laughs> you have a life and so what that tells me is we're gonna have to do a second installment okay and you're going to have to come back and spend more time with me because I want to dive into, you were talking, we'll, we'll leave the listener with this. Mm -hmm. Luke said early in this interview, you know, sometimes you sit down and you're like, all right, I'll write that and we'll just see what happens. That ain't never going to be on the radio. Mm -hmm. that, Luke wrote pontoon. Luke wrote a boat, a, a song about a pontoon boat that became an absolute monster. <laughs> and I, you know, uh, back to Jay Joyce, mm -hmm. you know, he takes, he takes those, those things that come out of your head and just goes, you know, we can make this thing. Yeah. We can make this thing beautiful. And the next thing, you know, little big town has that, yeah. uh, brother, I appreciate your spirit so much. Oh, and man. I'm so grateful that you gave me, I'm sorry. I kept you this long. Oh, but, it's all good. Man. Uh, I appreciate you have an amazing day, amazing weekend. And we'll do it again. You too, Marty. Take care. All right, brother. Be Bye. good.